Three weeks to go, but is there anything for the services to vote for? Trump's on the run as the ex-FBI boss hunts down the files. NATO gets a new HQ and the workload says it's worth it. And how the RAF took out the IS executioners. It's three weeks until Britain goes to the polls for the general election. This week, Labour, the Lib Dems and today the Conservatives launched their party manifestos. BFBS reporter James Hurst has been to the launches, done all the reading and can now tell us what the party's different plans are for defence. Hello, James. Uh, let's start with the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, you say different plans. Actually, there's not a huge amount of difference. So uh, we're in Halifax for the Conservative Manifesto launch, or perhaps I should say Theresa Mays, because she called it My Manifesto. Uh, a restatement of the Conservative pledge on defence spending to keep meeting the NATO 2%, uh, also to keep slightly increasing defence spending in real terms. Michael Fallon, very excited. It doesn't just promise... Uh, 0.5% in real terms increase. It promises at least 0.5%. Uh, there is also what looks like the same promise to uh, on the size of the forces, but it's been tweaked slightly, and I think they want wriggle room here. So it says it will maintain the overall size of the armed forces, but whereas last time they said they promised that the army would be at least 82,000, they now say that the army will be able to uh, field a warfighting division, but they've removed that number. That looks to me like they want room to maybe move numbers between one service and another. Mm, interesting little adjustment. And last night it was the Lib Dem Lib Liberal Democrats. Yes, the Liberal Democrats are really very familiar. Um, you know, distinctive for them is their plan to go to a slimmer nuclear deterrent with three boats rather than four, uh, with intermittent, unpredictable patrols rather than continuous at-sea deterrence. They, too, pledged to keep meeting the NATO 2% spending target, but no more than that in terms of pledges. Uh, on forces pay, they are promising to remove the 1% cap on public sector pay increases across the public sector and raise pay in line with inflation. Mm, something they have in common with, with Labour, I believe. Yeah, Labour, are, again, are promising to remove that cap on public sector pay rises. But what they actually say is, we want to give the public sector, these hard-working people of the public sector, a pay rise. The implication of that is that they would increase pay above inflation. The Lib Dem plan is steady as she goes. Labour are implying that they would give real terms increases. No big surprises from Labour, I suppose partly because it, it was leaked. Uh, it restates the Labour Party's commitments to renewing Trident, uh, again a commitment to the 2% of GDP, NATO spending and no more, and commitments to NATO and the United Nations. Also a promise uh, from Labour to improve forces accommodation. Mm, and James, uh, this week also Ply Cymru have been outlining their uh, manifesto. What have they said on defence? Yes, I mean, not, not a huge amount on defence from Plaid Cymru. One of the things that stands out for them, they are one of the parties that is implacably opposed to the new 
deeply a deterrent and they would like to see it scrapped. Christopher Lee, our defence analysis here in the studio. Christopher, what do you think in these manifestos as they stand at the moment there is to interest people serving in the armed forces? Well, you can bin all the lines about Trident, about commitment to NATO, about 2%. You know, there is nothing, not only isn't there anything new in that, it is totally meaningless because that's a national commitment, etc., etc. If you go along to Whitehall, uh, in the bars in the rag and places like this, where the sort of the weekend cowboys, these generals and admirals, etc., are sort of getting courage, they would tell you what they wanted to see, and they really did, and to some extent, Labour's gone with this, uh, and some extent, just to teach the, the Conservatives, what they really wanted to see was this. They wanted to see in, manife- in, in the manifestos, they wanted to see m- manpower. They wanted to see, they will put everything into manpower. They wanted to do publicity. They will, they will uh, set up a commission, why people are not joining mm. the services, etc. It is the biggest problem the services have today, and it's not in the... But, but statements the, about pay, accommodation, veterans, that all goes down quite well, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. I no? Mean, it, no, no, of course not. Why not? No, because because it's, it's, it's an abstract... Uh, people say, look, this, it I affects know where people's I, no, lives look, they, quite directly. Uh, it, you, you don't get it changed at an election. And that is, the, that is the main problem. It's rather like saying this is what we'll do with defence. In 2020, there is going to be a defence review. And if you go and talk to soldiers and sailors and airmen, they know jolly well that in 2020, that is the real time to discover what they want, what they can get, and what they're going to do with, their, with the armed forces. And in the meantime, the main point remains manpower and in fact all three so all three parties don't actually understand that nobody actually says right uh, go and get them in tell them what i might have to fight tell them what they've got to do with the fighting they can they can fight with and and how can i change this nobody does that nobody wants to listen to them all right christopher stay with us and james hurton halifax thank you Sit Rep. With Kate Still to come, while NATO defence chiefs meet in Brussels, we go behind the scenes at the Alliance's Joint Force Headquarters in Naples and how an RAF Reaper stopped an IS execution in Syria. A former boss of the FBI has been named as special counsel to oversee an inquiry into Russia's alleged interference in the US presidential election. Robert Mueller's appointment was widely endorsed by politicians from both sides. Professor Scott Lucas is from the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. Hello to you today, Scott. Um, What do you make of this appointment? I hear it took the White House by surprise somewhat. (laughs) <laughs> not only took them by surprise, it sent them into a tailspin trying to figure out how to respond, because this is really an assertion by the U.S. bureaucracy, the agencies, to take control of what is happening away from the White House, and indeed even from the Republicans in Congress. Uh, Donald Trump and his allies had held up for weeks against a special prosecutor, a special counsel, and suddenly the Justice Department Uh, under the acting attorney general, because the attorney general, a Trump ally, has had to recuse himself from the investigation. The acting attorney general said, that's it. Mm. We're going to have this former FBI director, and we're going to see how far this investigation goes. Christopher Lee, I understand you've met Robert Mueller a few times. What can you tell us about him? Bob Mueller is a good, uh, very independent-minded 
uh, minded fellow, even within the, his own agency when he was running the, uh, the FBI. And I think he, I'm not sure, uh, Scott, didn't he, he? I think he ran it for as long as anybody other than uh, the, the founder of the FBI. He can go, and he, and he has said this, I will go, I want independence, I want to take what I need, I want the emails, I want all the, the memos, I want everything, but I remain independent. And independent also of the Deputy Attorney General, uh, Rod Rosenstein, who, who actually appointed him. He can't actually get to him. And that's going to be the, the fascination of this, who who does. And at the moment, uh, there's a guy called Jason Chatters, who is the, uh, the House... Uh, uh, oversight committee is the man that's starting to monitor this and it's day by day page by page and I think he's got a very powerful ally there Professor Lucas um, what will he be able to do will he be able to fulfill all his desires well Robert Mueller uh, is a very close to James Comey uh, the FBI director who was fired last week because Comey was his successor now that means that all the material Comey's collected including the revelation last week that Donald Trump uh, asked him to, to hinder or limit the investigation of the possible Russian links. Mueller will have access to that. He'll have access to all the material the FBI has been collecting and the CIA and the National Security Agency. And because all of those agencies have been alienated by Trump, who has called them Nazis, who has said that this is all a hoax, they'll have uh, no love lost in trying to drive this investigation to wherever the evidence leads it. Mm, and you say that, I mean, Russia keeps coming up again and again. Is that all they might have on him? Well, Russia is certainly the primary issue because of the interference by Moscow in the 2016 campaign and by new evidence, which we got yesterday, of contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians. But remember, it goes wider because there's allegations that money was funneled improperly into the Trump campaign, some of it by the Russians, but some of it possibly by other interests. And there is just the the overarching argument about whether there was an attempt to cover up or impede an investigation, something which, of course, again, is connected to the Russians, but harks back to what Richard Nixon did in Watergate in the 1970s. It's an interesting as aspect here. Um, you've got a subject. You say, we're going to have an investigation. You start getting the memos, and then somebody says, "What's this in this memo about? This is what's this about? All uh, oh, right, we'll put on somebody who will follow that aspect. We'll put on somebody who will follow something else, which is not apparently what you're after in the first place." And then other things start to happen, other things that can lead to other people, and so you then subpoena the documents from other people, and you build this into. And the classic example was Bill Clinton, who 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 was nicked and was investigated for something that was happening in Arkansas. And then the only thing that was likely to sort of take him out was the fact of he uh, committed perjury in, in front of a committee. Hence, to some extent, hence why uh, Jason Chafter says, I'm going to follow this. Mm. I'm really going to follow it because it's what you don't go after in the first place is likely to be the bit of evidence that sort of hooks you. And the other thing that's coming out of the Washington Post at the moment, uh, people on the Washington Post, is that uh, the one thing that Trump says you must not touch is Ivanka. Mm. Keep away from the family. And they'll not do that. They'll, they'll go after anybody. Just turning slightly to another subject, Professor Scott Lucas, um, the presidential election in Iran this weekend, and you said there is concern that this election might be interfered with um, as well, or allegations that it might be. Um, by whom and to what end? The election between the centrist president, Hassan Rouhani, and the hardline cleric, Ebrahim Raisi, has become very close, in part because the other conservative challenger uh, dropped out to support Raisi. Now, uh, the 
race could be decided uh, by you know a very narrow margin as it was in 2009. And yesterday, the Supreme Leader, who helped basically cement that 2009 result, despite the fact of uh, irregularities, said, oh, oh, we need to watch out by fraud by Iran's enemies. Now, that's a very curious statement to make, because there's no evidence that Iran's enemies are going to try to tilt mm. this for Rouhani. Instead, it looks like the Supreme Leader is trying to say, well, if we do manipulate this election, if we do have to step in, uh, don't blame us. Uh, let's look <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, and so I'm not saying this will happen, but it is definitely a possibility. Christopher Lee, what, what are the implications? What's at stake in this election for, for the region and for for the UK? Well, yeah, let's ignore perhaps to, to some extent what might be happening there because uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, you know, the, uh, the, the grand Ayatollah, he is not a well man. He is a very ill man, in fact. And people are already thinking about the, how you, you, you might look for somebody who, who the Grand Committee is uh, uh, replace him. But behind all this is what happens to the 2015 nuclear deal. You know, the, uh, Iran said, OK, we will not make nuclear weapons. Is that ago, what's at that. stake? Is that the biggest thing in terms of... I don't think it's actually at stake, but it, get, it might get a bump because of one thing. And that is, there was a great hope, I think, among a lot of people in, in Iran that there would be economic results from, from making that sort of deal. Sanctions were off, etc. And there hasn't been the signs that they expected to get. So it's a far more complicated thing than whether mm. there's any sort of bad, bad, bad doings in, in, in the two main parties. Although Ibrahim Raisi, um, you know, he's, he's a very young man, well, in, in, in their terms, uh, for, uh, for, for going for this. And he's got the hardliners. And sometimes when uh, you get uh, a great leader saying, well, uh, we've got to make sure that nobody interferes, that nobody could actually be the people among the hardliners themselves. Mm -hmm. Professor Scott Lucas, um, just to bring it back to where we started, um, in terms of Donald Trump, where do you see this whole, what seems like a gigantic global pantomime going next? Well, I don't think we're looking at impeachment um, in the near future, uh, that takes you know takes a long time to build up those allegations uh, if they lead to charges. But I do think that day after day the headlines are going to be about the latest developments in the investigation, whether it's about the Russian involvement, whether it's about conflicts uh, between Trump's business interest and his political interest, including those of his family. And that's going to hem the White House in on uh, its domestic agenda, and I think importantly on its foreign and military policy. No repeal of Obamacare, no tax recoding, and no real significant move uh, to regain American leadership. I think you're going to see a weakened United States and therefore questions for its allies, mm -hmm. including European allies in Britain, is what they do as American power recedes. All right. Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham, thank you. Also editor of the EA Worldview website. Thanks for your time today. Now, let's look briefly at some of the other defence stories around this week. Uh, Christopher, um, Donald Trump is in Saudi Arabia tomorrow morning, but uh, trouble follows him, doesn't it? Uh, well, yeah, because the uh, he's going to be sitting next to at a lunch, very nice lunch they're having there. Um, and one of the guests is going to be Bashir from uh, Somalia. Who is who is wanted is on the wanted list for for war crimes, and quite frankly, uh, I wonder the what president, they'll talk about. The, well, the president, the president, the president. Uh, you know, well, I can imagine him, the president of the United States, saying, "You think you've got problems? No president in the United States has ever ever been so so lambasted as me." But the point being, he should not be there alongside him, mm. and that's not going to help his case publicly anyway. But he will be coming back. He'll be signing. Uh, 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 Donald Trump will be signing 
$350 billion, $350 billion worth of arms deals while he's there. He's off to Israel as well soon, isn't he? Yeah, well, you've got to go to Israel if you go to Saudi Arabia. But, I mean, when he takes that, the, the, when he mm. takes those uh, orders back to the United States, people like Boeing and Martin Marinetti can say, you know, leave the guy alone, send him back out there. This is very good news for American, American, um, American business. And the uh, North Korean missiles, this one just goes on and on, doesn't it? Well, it does, except for one thing. There's a calculation going on at a centre in Monterey that does all sorts of things with their computers, wondering where you go to next. Uh, so there's one tested last weekend. Yeah, one tested last weekend, which they... Uh, the, if, you look, if you look in the papers and say, look, here goes the missile, and you've got lots of uh, radio uh, diagrams, and they're all going towards the West Coast of the United States, etc. Don't forget there is a North Pole. And if you reverse the trajectory of the, of the missile... The next projection, at the moment anyway, is that it could reach Western Europe. We're in Western Europe. Therefore, if you're a Tory defence minister, you say, or Labour defence minister, you say, that's why we've got a deterrent. <laughs> well, on that note, NATO defence ministers have been meeting this week in Brussels. They've been discussing whether the alliance should join the coalition against IS put together by Washington. NATO currently has eight operations underway, from a training mission in Afghanistan to its enhanced forward presence operation in the Baltic states and Poland. But what about the nuts and bolts of the organisation? How does it all work? Well, our reporter, Tim Cooper has been to Italy where he spoke to Major General Ian Cave, Deputy Chief of Staff Plans at Joint Force Headquarters in Naples. NATO on the operational side has two operational level headquarters, both commanded by four-star officers. This one here commanded by Admiral Howard, who's a US Navy officer. Uh, so we both work to the Supreme Headquarters out of Powers Europe up in Mons in Brussels. So the the schedule is effectively two four-star operational headquarters who do operational level planning, but also critically are on permanent standby um, for any contingencies that may arise. Uh, and if that was the case, then we would either command from this building here or from uh, deployed theatre locations such as Afghanistan um, or elsewhere. How does that work on a, on a rotational basis with those two headquarters? So there's been a change uh, from January this year. Previously, uh, the two JFCs, us and our sister headquarters up in the Netherlands, uh, did uh, a training year and then a year at readiness. In January this year, that changed. So both headquarters are now held at what's called perpetual standby, so permanent readiness. But there is a mechanism that means that we continue to train every second year. And I think the rationale behind it is that it then gives the Supreme Commander Sakure the ability to identify the headquarters that's best placed to deploy to the crisis as it emerges. So there's no formal boundary as such, uh, but I think over time we'll see um, an increasing specialisation. Both headquarters have very specific missions at the moment in peacetime. So, for example, up in the Netherlands, they conduct the operational oversight for the Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan. Here we look after the activity in the Balkans to include K4 uh, and also the relationship with the NATO's partners in the southern region, so Middle East and, and across North Africa. So there's, there is an informal sort of regional boundary minus, uh, if you like. In terms of 
the, the troops that you control? I mean, one common misconception about NATO is that you have a large standing body of troops that you deploy. That's not the case, is it? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's, there's a very mature mechanism now where the ownership of the troops belongs to the 28 allied nations. Uh, and the nations choose through the decision-making process and the operational planning process to identify some forces that would be appropriate and therefore tailored for the mission. And then as they leave their home nation and arrive into the operational theatre, it's at that point where they are transferred to NATO C2. So as we go through the training system, we have a habitual relationship with forces who themselves are rotating. Uh, and there's an expectation that we would deploy with those forces on the assumption that the, uh, the crisis is in the right place and those forces are optimised. Uh, but you're absolutely right, NATO doesn't um, own those forces on a sort of routine basis. In terms of if there was uh, an operational necessity to mount an operation of that type, what would happen to the headquarters here? Would it function from here or would elements deploy? So that's a, um, th that is a, a live issue. Um, so as, as a crisis emerged, there would be a formal deliberate planning process. And part of that, there would be a command and control estimate. So this building, which is now uh, five years or so old, there are a couple of stories underground in which is a fully functioning, very well-connected joint ops centre. So one could argue that we are absolutely perfectly located to command anything in the southern region of NATO from, from here. Um, you'll see as you go around the place that we've got tremendous life support here. Um, so the conditions are ideal. The only rider to that is that uh, history tells us that um, it's not a bad idea to put the, the key command node very close to the centre of an emerging crisis. So perhaps it would be in an adjacent nation capital, or it might be in a, um, a place that's got really good communications from air, maritime and uh, uh, land. But we've, we've effectively got both options, um, and we practice both of those options. That was Major General Ian Cave, Deputy Chief of Staff at JFC Naples. Uh, Christopher, next week, the big week for NATO. It's probably the biggest week for NATO, certainly in a decade, maybe longer. Why is that exactly? It is a summit of NATO, all the heads of state, including Donald Trump, coming from the United States. Or in fact, he'll be in Europe already. Um, and they have to actually expect that Trump has something to say which is going to either get up the frocks of most of the governments, like you're not paying the 2%, only five countries are actually paying the 2% increased defence spending. It is not beyond him not to come. And it's not beyond him to sort of you get really bored. You really think so? Oh, yeah. And I will tell not you something... Not even to the new headquarters? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, what have we got a building like this for? He says, what are we doing? And this is when he is going to demand, but exactly what do you do with this building? What are, you, what are we doing as NATO? Because America actually doesn't want to do a lot of things that NATO's doing. We've actually seen, uh, well, I've seen a note about uh, from his own office, the Oval Office, saying it would be better if every speaker, and we're talking about people like Mrs. May, uh, Mrs. Merkel, etc., et they do not speak for more than, say, three, three and a half minutes because the president gets bored very easily. <laughs> they, his, his, this is from his Are office. Are you sure about this? Oh, I am sure. <laughs> from his office also, uh, that it's always good to mention his name somewhere in because that draws his attention to what... He's got a low attention <laughs> span, and we, we know that anyway. 
Uh, that meeting, I think, is going to be extraordinarily important politically among the NATO what leaders. Do you, do you think there'll be any big announcements coming out of this meeting? You don't need a big announcement. The only big announcement you ever need is about Russia. Well, let's talk more now about the fight against IS. The Ministry of Defence said this week that an RAF Reaper intervened during a public execution staged by the terror group. BFBS reporter Simon Newton has been following events from RAF Aquatiri in Cyprus and joins us now. Uh, Simon, what happened exactly? Well, this happened uh, last Tuesday, the 9th of uh, May, um, involving a UK Reaper. We've got 10 in the region based uh, in, the me- in the Middle East. They, w- they were redeployed from Kandahar at the start of this offensive against ISIS. The Air Modi's never confirmed publicly where they are, but it's it's on uh, very easy to find out uh, if you go on the internet. Um, this happened, I say, last Tuesday in a uh, place called Abu Kamal in eastern Syria. Now the Reaper, which, which can stay in the air for about 14 hours observing what's going on below it, was uh, looking at that town. It uh, saw a large gathering of people and uh, two shackled prisoners, uh, we're told, were being led out of uh, a van. Uh, clearly for a public execution. Now, there was obviously a lot of civilians in that town looking on. Uh, the decision was taken, obviously, they couldn't launch an airstrike onto the proceedings below, but they noticed there was um, some sentries on a building nearby, some IS fighters. Um, that uh, Reaper launched a Hellfire missile at the roof of that building. It killed that uh, particular sentry, and it sent all of the fighters and, and the assembled crowd um, fleeing. So essentially stopped that execution taking place. Has there been any footage of this uh, revealed yet? Not that I have seen. Um, we get the periodic footage, um, but very rarely do we see footage that actually involves people on the ground. It's usually buildings uh, that, we, that we're given the footage of. Mm. Oh, any news on the operation in Mosul? Well, that's now seven months um, old. It began in October. Uh, it's been uh, called tough and brutal by uh, General Stephen Townsend, the senior US commander this week. Uh, as we understand it, all but five square miles of that city are now cleared, uh, and IS are now holed up in this small area inside the uh, the old city. There were around 6,000 fighters believed to be in Mosul when they launched this offensive. There's now thought to be just about 1,000 of them uh, so far. The Iraqi military say they've uh, they killed 16,000 militants so far in this uh, battle and have captured uh, 400. Uh, so, as I say, they're trying to move into this western half of Mosul. If you remember, there was a, a, a renewed offensive a few weeks ago into the north-west uh, of the city uh, by the 9th Division. They are moving down towards this thing, essentially squeezing ISIS. They're completely encircled within that. Uh, and this is believed to be their last stand. It is a, it is a war of attrition now. I think um, they, uh, the Americans are, are talk, calling this the most deadly urban conflict since, uh, since the Second World War. Uh, and IS are using various... Uh, tactics so they are blending in with the, c- the civilian population they're using a lot of snipers a lot of mortars against the iraqi military the iraqi military i should say are also taking heavy casualties they've lost i think 750 or so troops so far in this battle about four and a half thousand have been injured uh, mm. since this offensive began in october so there is a very heavy price being paid to recapture the city the iraqis we understand would like to get this done by by the start of uh, Ramadan, which is next Friday, the 26th of May. So they have a sort of timeline in place. Christopher Lee, um, if NATO were to decide that the whole alliance, the alliance as a whole, were to unite in the fight against IS, do you think it would make any difference? Well, politically, it it can't be done in theory because it's it's a question of actually committing troops or, or equipment. 
to the fight. And so what you get is the Americans in particular saying, look, we've got five or six uh, countries that are involved. Uh, but the, So the, is it fairly pointless then? No, it's not pointless because you then reinforce the idea that you want the support, for example, during uh, votes in the, NATO, in, in the United Nations Security Council. And so you get it backed up that way. But the interesting point here is that anybody's memory goes back to the battle for Fallujah, for example, in, 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 in Iraq. You realise you don't do these things Friday week because it's Ramadan. Mm. Um, and you start saying to yourself, as the Americans are at the moment, it is surprising for us the resupply of weapons to ISIS, where we thought we had the supply routes cut off. And the same thing is now happening in Raqqa, with the same sort of the, the, the same same sort of problems, uh, and uh, people I talk to say, "We'll be all right. We can get this sorted out by the autumn." Simon, you've been uh, based out there in Cyprus for a while now. Mm. What's your sense of, of how busy the operation is at the moment in terms of sorties? Well, it certainly steps up here. Here we're on a sort of daily uh, uh, number of missions out of Akrotiri. Uh, I've just been. We spoke a couple of weeks ago out on the on the bush. Uh, the USS George H.W. Bush in the Gulf, and they're f- equally flying a lot of missions, a lot of ordnance. I mean, I saw the jets being low with, loaded with ordnance on that aircraft carrier uh, and coming back empty. I see a similar thing here. So we, they are dropping a lot of weapons on those things. You have to taking on um, the, the point just made. You obviously have to remember they have been in that city for nigh on three years now, being mm-hmm. able to uh, stockpile weapons, build defences, get themselves ready for what they knew was going to be. Uh, their last stand in Iraq eventually uh, and you know we understand that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi who was there has, has, has gone now obviously that was the mosque where he proclaimed the caliphate so um, the Iraqi army are very keen to get in there despite the very he- heavy casualties they're taking Alright Simon Newton in Cyprus thank you very much uh, Christopher uh, one word next week what will we be talking about? Oh uh, Trump at NATO <laughs> we're always talking about Trump but Trump at NATO and what is he going to say because he is He's unexciting, but he's not talking. That is it for this week. Thanks for listening. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2.